0: in our Bibles together to James chapter five. We'll be looking at the last two verses of this chapter today as we wrap up our series on the book of James. My wife and I have been married for uh, 24 years. And the first time I met her, which was at church, I knew I wanted to marry her. She, on the other hand, <laughs> took a little time to come to the same conclusion. And that was okay because I was determined to be patient in making my appeal for her to marry me. And my appeal didn't come until about two years after we met when we were in a restaurant in San Antonio, Texas, and the waiter brought the dessert tray over to us to let us choose our desserts after our meal was over. And when he pulled off the cover of the dessert tray, there was only a ring sitting on the platter. And I got down on one knee and I said, Tamar, Proverbs 18, 22 says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Baby, I think I've found a good thing. Will you marry me? (laughs) And she said, yes. I'm as stunned as you are. That was the moment, friends, that I made my formal appeal for her to marry me. And it was my last appeal. We'd been talking about it for at least a year, but I was not gonna take no for an answer that day. So fast forward many years later, our oldest son was about seven or eight. And one day he asked my wife, he said, mommy, why did you get married to daddy? To which my wife said, son, he was the only one who asked. Then he turned to me and he said, Daddy, why did you get married to mommy? And I said, son, she was the only one that said yes. (laughs) I ain't making this up. I had made appeals to others before her, but she was my last appeal, praise God. Now this morning what we have in the final two verses of James is the last appeal. And you know, since January, we have studied this letter penned by the half-brother of Jesus, the lead elder of the church in Jerusalem. And we've seen this amazing emphasis over and over again about a faith that works. That true Christian faith is not a faith that stays in the theoretical realm. No, the the faith that James is talking about here is, is a faith that is lived out in real life. That kind of faith authenticates and demonstrates that someone has truly been transformed by the work of grace in their life. And so we've seen over the course of this series that it's a faith that actually sustains a person through trials and suffering. It's also a faith that puts the word of God into action as we become doers of the word. It affects our speech and the things that we say and text and tweet and post. It shapes the wisdom by which we live. It even impacts how we handle conflicts with each other and it's a faith that's so gritty, it affects how we pray for one another as we learned last Sunday. And today we'll see that James is making his last appeal for a faith so genuine that it motivates us to go after those who are straying from the faith. I want to say that again. In this last appeal, friends, James concludes his letter with an instruction to live out a genuine faith by pursuing those who have gone astray. Let's see what God's Word has to say about that, shall we? Let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's Word and let's read the last two verses of James chapter 5, beginning in verse... 19. Word of God says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. You can be seated. So what do we got here? Well, you printed out the outline, you'll see the big idea. James's last appeal here is for us to make an appeal to those within the church who are going astray. And he does that by beginning particularly, number one on your outline, with the sad scenario in verse 19. And the sad scenario is someone in the congregation walking away from the Christian faith. This, uh, This type of scenario comes up in our cultural conversation every few years or so, when some famous Christian announces that they are no longer a Christian. In the summer of 2019, it was Joshua Harris, a pastor and an author, who in divorcing his wife announced that he no longer believes in Christianity. He apologized for the sermons that he had preached and the books that he had written. And then a month later, he marched in a gay pride parade in Canada, where he now lives. The media labeled Joshua's turn as his deconstruction. In the Old Testament, it's called backsliding. And here in James, in verse 19, he describes it as a person who wanders from the truth it's so easy to immediately focus, friends, on the wandering person. But I want you to look at, in verse 19, what are the first two words of that verse? My what? Come on, talk to me. My what? My brothers. That's right. One of the first things that James does with this sad scenario is he demonstrates the importance of siblinghood. Letter A on your outline. Demonstrates the importance of siblinghood. Verse 19 He's talking about the siblinghood that we have in Christ. We talk a lot about siblinghood here at our church, that as a congregation, as members of this church, we are first and foremost siblings in Christ with one another, serving together in this particular local church. And that siblinghood matters because as brothers and sisters in Jesus, we've made a covenant together. That's that's what church membership is, it's a covenant. At its core, local church membership is about the promises that we make one to another. It's not a casual relationship because we are actually vouching for each other's testimony. So siblinghood matters. Now, I'm honored to be an elder here in our church. (laughs) But first and foremost, I am your brother in Christ. We're family. And James demonstrates that same kind of siblinghood in verse 19 when he uses the term, my brothers. It's actually the 15th time he's used the term brothers in this letter. And then he uses the phrase, if anyone among you. My brothers, if anyone among you. Just to be super clear who we're talking about here. James is talking about a person who claims Christ and is in the membership of the church. My brothers, if anyone is among you. You know, it's amazing to me how we can get all fired up about some celebrity Christian that we don't even know and have no relationship with when they say something stupid or they wander from the faith. But yet at the same time, we're ambivalent when a member of this church goes astray and we do nothing about it. You know why we're tempted to do that, friends? I believe we're tempted to do that because we can't do anything about Joshua Harris's situation except have an opinion about it, and that's easy. But a situation in our church, like the church discipline case that the elders shared with our church about at the most recent member meeting, no, that kind of situation requires responsibility. That requires ownership. And consistent with the entire book of James, it requires a faith that works through difficult situations. See, when we pursue somebody in our church who is wandering from the faith, the stakes are actually higher. Because we're not talking about an acquaintance. We're talking about a sibling. James is describing a sad scenario that demonstrates the importance of siblinghood and at the same time, Let her be on your outline. It reminds us all of our own depravity. This sad scenario that he's talking about reminds us all of our own depravity. Verse 19, look at it with me again. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, it can happen to any of us. That phrase, wanders from the truth, in some of your translations may be air from the truth or astray from the truth. They're all pointing to the same thing. This is a person who has lost their way and is wandering aimlessly from the path that they were previously on. James learned this just as we do today from the teachings of Jesus. Think, think about the parable of the lost sheep. In Matthew eighteen twelve, Jesus asked the question, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? It's a rhetorical question, friends. And the answer is, of course he does. See, in the original language in the New Testament, the word for astray in the parable of the lost sheep is the exact same word in James 5.19 here for wanders. (laughs) You know, if you're a parent raising kids in your home right now, it's good for us to be reminded that this also applies to the job of being a parent. It is easy to give in to your kids, isn't it? It's easy to give up on your kids and just let them do whatever they want. Parenting is a weary job at times and it can grind you down. Amen. Amen. (laughs) But today, parents, we can be encouraged. We have a limited amount of time to shepherd our kids' hearts towards the truth. And when they wander off the path, we are to do exactly what James is describing here. One of the things that I painfully discovered about parenting, just like marriage, is that God uses parenting in my life as a sanctifying work, a sanctifying work in me. And yes, I get frustrated most by the people who share my last name, but that is mostly because... Many times the Lord is using that to remind me of my own depravity, my own need for Jesus. He does that in the church too. Our our disappointment and even our frustration with other siblings in Christ who have wandered from the faith should remind us of just how easy it is for any of us to wander from the truth. And the truth that James is referring to here in verse 19 is twofold. It is the truth, Jesus And it is the truth, the Word of God, the Scriptures. It's both. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth. In John 17, 7, Jesus was praying for his followers, and he said, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. So it's both. James is talking about somebody who's wandering away from the truth, the written word of God, and as a result is also wandering away from the truth, the person of Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, if we neglect our Bibles, we will ultimately reject our Savior. It's just a matter of time. This is all about wandering away from the truth. A few weeks ago, Oprah did an interview with Harry and Meghan. And Oprah did what she's done for many years in that interview, in that in one of her questions to Harry and Meghan, she used the phrase, your truth, to distinguish it between my truth as she would describe it. She does that a lot. And that is a common way that the world thinks about truth today. So I want us to be clear in our gathering today that there is no pronoun that ever comes before the word truth, ever. Truth is an objective reality that we must come to know and believe. Truth has a name and his name is Jesus. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, What's the next phrase? And someone brings him back. Now, James is gonna elaborate on bringing the wanderer back in the next verse. But if you remember, one of the first points that James made right off the bat in James chapter one was that, that in any trial, it can lead to temptation into sin. And that's sobering when you think about it. That's why we're being charged here in chapter five to bring back someone who is wandering from the truth. They may have gone through a trial recently and they're now giving in to temptation. And we all go through trials, so we're all prone to give in to temptation. We're all susceptible to wander from the truth. This is the kind of sad scenario that should remind us all of our own depravity. That's what John Newton described in the great hymn, Come Thou Fount in 1758. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. <laughs> Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Church family, may we never forget just how easy it is for any of us to wander from the truth, which is why we must live in relation with each other in a healthy, with a healthy understanding of our own depravity, our own propensity to wander. It's a sad scenario that James describes. But then he moves to number two on your outline, verse 20, the clear command. The clear command in verse 20, take a look at it with me. It's an interesting statement that he makes in verse 20. And it's always important that you and I, whatever passage that we're in, that we look for the verbs. This is particularly true in the New Testament. We look for the commands, the imperatives as they're called because we wanna know what the Lord expects of us, right? We wanna know what the scripture is calling us to. See, our devotional life of daily Bible reading is not primarily about giving us warm fuzzies. It's not about making us feel good. That's not its primary objective. The Bible actually says about itself in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says this, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now several of those things on that list are self-explanatory, but the idea of reproof is to rebuke. The scriptures rebuke our wrong thinking, which is about doctrine, what we believe and the scriptures rebuke our bad living, which is about our behavior, how we live. By the way, those two things always go together, doctrine and behavior, what we believe and how we live. They are connected to each other, wrong thinking leads to bad living. And this just shows the consistency of the Bible because here in James five, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James gives a clear command about someone who is wandering In those two areas, doctrine and behavior. And that command in verse 20 is let him know. I'll give you, it's a strange command, but that's the command, let him know. What's that all about? Well, the command let him know, first of all, requires a teachable heart. Letter A on your outline would be a teachable heart. Let him know. So we're supposed to learn and know something, and we'll get to what the object of that knowledge is in just a moment, but the command begs a question itself. And the question is, how teachable are you? How teachable am I? See, this may shock some of us, but this command presupposes that there's something we don't know and we need to know it. (laughs) Do you believe that for you, you're the kind of person Who thinks they have all the answers? Maybe I should ask somebody in your family that question about you. (laughs) How teachable are you? Do you come to church or life group just to have your already established conclusions reinforced? Have you at some point concluded, you know, I think I have enough of this figured out, so I'm good. Friends, the problem with that kind of thinking is that trials and suffering are in your future. Remember in James 1, it's not if, but when we face trials. And trials are designed by the living God to test either the depth or the shallowness of our faith. So the command, let him know, is kind of important. We've all heard Pastor Russell say, you better learn it in the light before you need it in the dark. Again, how teachable are you, friend? Think about this, if you were the wandering person, how would you respond to someone confronting you about your wandering? There's a line in our church covenant that pricks my conscience almost every time we say it together at our member meetings. And the line starts this way. It says, we'll speak in a way that is edifying, we'll serve in a way that provides tangible care. And here's the kicker. And listen in a way that is slow to take offense. Open to correction and ready for reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, can you say that about you? The clear command in James requires a teachable heart, but also the clear command, letter B, focuses us on the role that we play in each other's lives. If the command in verse 20 is let him know, what what are we supposed to know? All right, we'll look at it. Just keep reading. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering. Okay, hold up right there. I want you to think long and hard about whether you have ever done that in your Christian walk. Whether, As long as you've been a Christian, have you ever done that? Let's exclude our kids for this exercise, okay? Have you ever attempted it? I'm not even talking about success. Have you ever tried to do that, to bring a sinner back from they're wandering. I'm going to guess that the answer for many of us is, uh, no. I didn't even know I was supposed to do that, Pastor David, and it sounds kind of hard. Yeah, it is. So if there's a fellow church member going through a difficult season in their life, a time of trial, you can go ahead and take the initiative and reach out to them because temptation is right around the corner for them. And it may be a temptation towards blatant sin, or it may just be a temptation to give up hope because of their trial. But you are to take the initiative. Or let's say if in a conversation with another church member, they mention a book that they are reading and it's by an author that you know promotes a false gospel. Go ahead and take the initiative and lovingly warn them about what they are reading. Or if you know of a couple in this church who is struggling and contemplating divorce, jump in with both feet and lovingly warn them about the lies that the enemy is going to try to convince them of. Lies like you deserve to be happy, or leave him, it'll be better, or leave her, the grass is greener, or your kids will be fine, they'll adapt. All lies from the enemy. Take the initiative and lovingly warn them. Or for us brothers in this church, if another brother has confided in you that he struggles with porn, ask him regularly about his battle and encourage him in his fight against sin. I could go on and on, friends, but these are just a few examples of how we help the wandering person. James is focusing us on the role that we play in each other's lives. This is what we're supposed to do, but the question remains, how are we supposed to do this? What kind of tone do we take when we attempt this? Well, the Apostle Paul actually answers that in Galatians 6.1 when he says, if anyone is caught in a, any transgression, You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness, that's right. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. We're to go after the wanderer. There's no question about that. But we are to approach them gently and humbly. The amazing thing about all this is that God uses his people, (laughs) us, to bring a wandering sheep back into the flock. He, of course, is sovereign over all human hearts, but he uses us as his instruments of his grace. That's astounding. And yes, I know that this is countercultural in America, that, that, that we're supposed to mind our own business. Don't get involved. Heavens, I've got neighbors on my street that when they come home, They pull all the way into their garage and close the garage door before they ever get out of their car. Now that may say something about me as their neighbor. I don't know. (laughs) But I think it's emblematic of the social assumption that you keep your distance. You don't get involved in the details of other people's lives. But as God's people in the church, we do get involved with each other. We are to live counter to our culture. So if you're a member or associate member of this church, think about this, there may come a time when the Lord may just provide an opportunity for you to bring back a sinner from their wandering. How about that? Oh, Pastor David, I could never do that. It's a clear command, friends, to know that our job as members is to bring them back. It's the most loving thing that we could do. Remember the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy and we cannot be apathetic about our siblings in Christ. So James has described here the sad scenario. He's revealed the clear command, and now, number three on your outline, we see a remarkable result. It is truly remarkable. The beautiful thing is there will be times when we pursue the wanderer, someone who is among us, meaning they're part of this church, and yet they're going astray, and when we pursue them in love, there are times that the result is restoration. Praise God. Look at what he says in verse, stay in verse 20. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Full stop. Hang on just a minute. I thought we'd been talking about a saved person this whole time. I thought we have been talking about a Christian, right? Well, I believe that we have been. Others may disagree with me on the interpretation of this passage. But I believe verse 19 encourages believers to pursue other believers who are wandering from the faith. So as a result of that, we should not immediately jump to the conclusion that just because somebody's wandering that they're not a Christian. That may eventually be shown to be true, but we don't start there, friends. Instead, the goal is always with the hope of bringing back the person, onto the path of faithfulness to Christ. And there are times that God in his sovereignty produces this remarkable result of restoration. And how the wanderer responds, that's how we know. That will ultimately prove whether or not they are a genuine believer in Christ. We don't make that determination going in, but we wait to see if they repent. And if they do repent, church, we celebrate. They come back to Christ, we rejoice because it shows that there is a genuine faith in them that is working in their life. But if they don't repent, they're simply demonstrating that their faith is just a mere profession, it's just words. It's not an actual saving faith that works as James has talked about. And they are demonstrating that they're lost even though that they're among us. First John 2.19 describes that person in this way. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Friends, it's heartbreaking when a person does not repent. But it is a marvelous and beautiful thing when the wanderer comes back and restoration happens. It demonstrates the grace of God when that happens. Because there's not only restoration, but there's also forgiveness. Last on your outline would be forgiveness. Keep reading in verse 20. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, I found this last phrase very, very strange because I assume that the wanderer was wandering in one particular area with one particular sin. But in the end, we see that the restoration process says it covers a multitude of sins. So what's that about? Well, in those times when there is an attempt to bring the wanderer back, and it's successful, the repentance in their life proves that their soul was saved all along. To be clear, they're not getting saved again because somehow they lost their salvation. We would not affirm that. No, they are saved, but they were wandering from the truth, and now they've been brought back. And someone who is brought back to the truth and onto the path of faithfulness to Christ, (laughs) that person is proving that the gospel is true in their life, that their sins have been completely forgiven, every single one of them because of the work of Christ. And again, this is consistent with the theme of the entire book of James. A person who has a real genuine faith has a faith that lasts, that perseveres ultimately to the end. And this concept of covering over sins in the Old Testament is, is, comes up several times, particularly in the wisdom literature. For example, Psalm 32, one says, blessed is the one whose transgressions, transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In the Old Testament, the blood of the animal being sacrificed would cover the sins of the people, but it would only do so temporarily. That animal's blood could not permanently resolve the sin issue. And that's still true today, friends. There's no religious act. There's there's no merit on our part. There's no level of sincerity in doing good stuff that can ever cover our sins. But when God sent his son, Jesus, and he died on the cross, Hebrews 10, 14 puts it this way. By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Jesus did it one and done. What I love about how this letter ends is these two parts of this remarkable result. Think about what he's saying here. That from our human perspective, we pursue the wanderer and we save their soul from death. But yet, from God's perspective, we're simply participating in the work of Christ because it is Christ who is the only one who covers a multitude of sins. God is so good to his people, isn't he? And we are a messy, sinful people. That's why we need each other. That's why we need Christ. And the blessing of the book of James is that it reminds us that God is still working to call messy, sinful people back to himself. James has made the appeal all throughout this letter to call us to a genuine faith. So if it's true that a wandering Christian needs to be restored because they were wandering from the truth, how much more might a lost sinner need to come to Christ today?